Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, This week saw uh, presidential and other elections in the US and inevitably I think that's been on a lot of our minds whether or not we live in the US. uh, We're all going to be affected by it one way or another and so our first topic today is actually going to be a discussion of tech and the presidential election. We're largely not going to dive into the merits of the election itself, but we will um, talk about the the relationship to technology, which of course is our major topic here on the podcast. Um, so that will be our first topic, and then our second topic will be our question of the week, in which I'm going to share some of my first impressions on Google's hardware. So I've been using the Google Home, Google Pixel, and Daydream View devices uh, for the last little while, uh, and so Aaron's going to ask me some questions about those, and we'll, we'll talk through my impressions of those and, and what that suggests about. Um, this new business for Google. So that will be our second topic. There won't be a news roundup. We figured the other two topics are probably big enough to last us a whole episode. So those will be our two major topics, and then we'll have a weekly pick for you right at the end. So with that, we'll launch into our first topic. Now, um, as I said, we're going to focus on tech and the election. We're not going to focus on the merits uh, here, but it's worth stating up front that um, neither of our households voted for uh, the winner, Donald Trump, Uh, I think both of us were uh, disgusted, as many other people were, by a lot of what he said and did, uh, both during the campaign and previous to it. And uh, so we were were not supporting him. I think both our households ended up voting for a third-party candidate. Um, I don't get to vote, as it happens. I'm a British citizen who's not yet a US citizen, so I don't get to vote. But my wife was born in the US, and she did vote for that third-party candidate. But at any rate, the results are where they are, um, and we now all have to live with the outcome of the election. Um, There's clearly already been fallout from this, a lot of groups feeling very vulnerable at the moment, Uh, a lot of unfortunate things happening, Uh, people who feel emboldened by the result, uh, just as we saw in the UK actually a few months back with Brexit, where people assume that the large number of people who voted for Trump feel the way they do as well, and a lot of racist attacks and other things happening in the days since, which obviously very sad and deplorable. Um, so, you know, obviously call on anybody listening to do what they can to foster empathy, to uh, protect those that stand in need of protection at this time, especially the vulnerable. Um, having said all of that, as I say, for the rest of this episode, we're, we're not going to uh, mostly talk about that and about the merits of the election itself. We're going to talk about technology. I'm going to do that in, in as unbiased a way as possible, but we felt it was fair that you uh, have that statement up front about where we're coming from on this. Uh, With that said, um, we'll start first of all by talking about the role of tech in the election itself. We'll then move on to talking about what's likely to happen to the technology industry and tech policy and so on in a Trump administration after that. But we wanted to start out talking about the role of technology in the election, especially social media, Twitter and Facebook. And we've talked about this a little bit over the last few months, but I want to do a bit of a deeper dive now that the, the results are known. And, and since we've had some commentary from Mark Zuckerberg about this last night, um, and also uh, we've been articles about Twitter and, and the role Twitter played in all of this as well. So Aaron, why don't we start with you on this topic? Well, I so... I think one of the really prominent topics as it relates to Facebook and Twitter in particular is is the way that they have been able to propagate uh, a very narrow worldview for the people using them. And, and this is true on both sides of the spectrum. I, you know, the, the conversation, a lot of the conversation since Tuesday has been how did so many people who not only supported Hillary Clinton but assumed she was going to win, how were they so out of touch with what... Um, so many voters were actually feeling. And then on the other side, you know, um, there's the argument that uh, a lot of Trump supporters are getting a very different picture of him as a candidate, or had a very different picture of him as a candidate, now president-elect. And how was that the case, that that, that 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 happened? And the argument has been, the dominant argument has been that it's about social media. That, um, and, and we've talked about this idea before, I think, in the podcast, how how we get these we get these very narrow, um, not, not social circles, is the wrong word for it, probably information diet is the best way to describe it. We get a, a very narrow um, one-note information diet, and that means that we don't have a, a, a diversity of opinions to consider. And, and without that balance, we it's easier to jump to conclusions. It's easier to, to have a perspective on truth that is very divergent from the one that other people have. Um, 
and I, I think it's appropriate, and I would even say fair, that Facebook and Twitter face a bunch of scrutiny um, to that end. Um, the, the, the idea is that both of those companies make money off of engagement, and engagement, the argument is that engagement goes up when people are uh, having their worldview confirmed rather than challenged. Um, you know, there's there are a lot of people who sort of turn away or turn up their noses at conflicting information, and so Facebook sort of bears a um, a cost to their brand if that's the experience people are having when they log in. And so, if instead you're getting a, a confirmatory experience, and, and and you know you're feeling like yeah, the way I understand the world is accurate, um, then you're more likely to stick around. Uh, I think it's I think it's absolutely appropriate that we spend time scrutinizing. Facebook and Twitter and the possible effects that they have in this regard. Whether or not the accusations are fair, that's less certain. And, and I think it's great that, that uh, Mark Zuckerberg happened to be at a conference yesterday and speaking on this topic. Um, he dismissed it outright, though. He, he basically said he thought the idea that Facebook was creating this environment was crazy. Um, I thought that was kind of a tone-deaf response. Um, only because it's he, he, he clearly has access to information and evidence that we don't have. He knows the balance of information that people are getting in their new, in their Facebook feeds, and we don't. And, uh, and and I think Facebook ought to be more transparent about that. He did throw out some figures. He said the problem isn't so much that people are getting getting exclusively confirmatory uh, news in their news feed. But the problem is they're just not clicking on it. So they're getting a diversity of stuff. But then uh, they're just the stuff that they're actually clicking on is the stuff that makes them feel like their understanding of the world is accurate. And he did point out that he, you know, we can't, he said at Facebook, we can't control that. We can't control what people click on. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, Twitter has the extra, uh, extra problem of harassment. That's not right. so much a problem on Facebook, and we mm -hmm. need to talk about that too separately. But but I mean, for now, I don't know, Yan. I mean, what do you think about Zuckerberg's counter argument that that there really is a diversity of information hitting people's news feeds? They just don't pay attention to the stuff that they don't like. Yeah, and, and this is an argument that Ben Thompson made in a piece that he wrote uh, earlier this week, actually, I think before the election results were out, about Twitter and how important it was. It was very timely in the end, but. Uh, he basically said that when your goal is engagement, you make decisions that perhaps go counter to what's in people's best interests. Um, you know, when all you want to do is get more people to click on more stuff and spend more time looking at it and engaging with it and so on, then you feed them a different set of stuff from if you want them to be well-informed, if you want them to have a balanced set of views presented to them and so on. And so, um, you know, Facebook... They both go for engagement, but Facebook makes many more decisions about what it presents to users than Twitter does. I mean, the, the interesting difference between Twitter and Facebook in this respect is that Twitter basically shows you exactly what you ask it to. Um, so you pick exactly which users you want to follow, and if you're in the default sort of everything timeline, you see literally everything those people say. Whereas on Facebook, you see some subset of the things that those people that you follow choose to do, whether that's sharing something, whether it's writing something themselves, whether it's liking somebody else's thing, whether it's this person is friends with that person this person commented on this other thing you know they choose what you see out of the vast majority out of vast amount of different stuff you could potentially see and so there is definitely more of a a filtering uh, element to what facebook does twitter does have some filtering now and then while you're away and highlights and various other things so they do some element of that but twitter is still sort of a purer feed that's determined much more by what you follow uh, whereas facebook is much more about um, you know, them choosing stuff for you based on what you've liked in the past, what other people are liking and so on. And so they do play different roles in that sense. Um, and they're dangerous in different ways, frankly. You know, Facebook is dangerous in that it reinforces this sort of filter bubble mentality, sort of, uh, you know, shoves you deeper into your corner, as it were. Whereas on Twitter, it's, it's the speed with which misinformation can spread because of the power of retweets and so on. Um, you know, it's the old quote about the, the falsehood getting halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on, you know. Um, it's incredibly fast to spread misinformation and, and the correction very rarely spreads as far. And that happens on Facebook too, but it happens more slowly because people tend to engage 
uh, maybe a handful of times a day on Facebook, whereas many people I think are on Twitter almost constantly throughout the day, which means it's this instantaneous virality that happens. Uh, but both of them certainly have, have played a role in all of this. And I think ultimately the best way to think about these platforms is like other media, that they are, on the one hand, enablers rather than things in their own right. And what I mean by that is if you choose to be a certain way, if you choose to read a certain kind of media, if you share, choose to share a certain kind of stuff, then each of these platforms will help you to do that. They're just enablers of that. They don't in and of themselves create any opinions. They don't in and of themselves uh, make those media decisions for you. You ultimately are the one making the decisions. It's just they then enable that and in some cases uh, perhaps take it to extremes. But the other thing is that users do make choices about this, and they always have done with media. You choose whether to read the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. You choose whether to watch Fox News or CNBC. You choose whether to listen to NPR or Rush Limbaugh. Um, you know, you have these choices as a user, and you, you make those choices. And, and we do exist in these uh, bubbles to some extent. Um, where we live has a huge effect on uh, how we see the world. You know, both of us live in Utah. Utah voted for Trump, um, much smaller numbers than past Republican candidates, but. You know, many of the people living around me uh, voted for Trump. And, um, you know, their life experiences here are very different from the life experiences of somebody living in the Bronx or Queens uh, or Compton or any number of other places in the country that are very different from here racially and economically and in other ways. Um, you know, those things all affect how we see the world. And in some ways, these social media platforms are just reinforcing that. They could help us bridge those divides. They could help us see another part of the world very much uh, more easily than we could in the physical world. And yet what they've actually done in many cases is just reinforce that sort of separate lives that we live in some ways. And so I think we've really seen that play out during the election as well. Well, and I think it's in that regard that Mark Zuckerberg is being especially naive. He's, he's continuing to insist that Facebook is a tech company, not a media company, based on the premise that they're not producing media but the very existence of a timeline that is curated somehow, right, algorithmically or otherwise, the very existence of this timeline that narrows the news that you see, the information that you see, is an editorial process. Just like an editor at the Washington Post, the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal, who sits down with his reporters and discusses upcoming stories and, and chooses priorities. I mean, that editor sits down and says, okay, let's... I'm going to cut the article you're doing about this. I don't think it's interesting enough. I'm going to make sure that we do an article on this because people seem to be asking a lot of questions about it. An, editor, an editor at a news publication is making choices about what we see. So if I read one of those publications, I'm, I'm getting information based on the editorial decisions of this group of people. Facebook is doing that exact same thing. The difference is it's not, it's not employing the the writers is not employing the people gathering and presenting the information, but is still doing the same cu curating process that an editor at a publication does. And as long as that's true, it's I think it's I think it's perfectly apt to consider Facebook a media company. It's just that they're getting the information that they share uh, in different ways. Um, but but there but there is a there is a choice making process there, mm -hmm. and whether yeah. it's automatic or or, or person-driven or a combination of both, which is really what it comes down to, because mm -hmm. Facebook is choosing to hand off part of the editorial process to the people I'm friends with. It's handing off part of the editorial process to these algorithms that it's designed, right. and, and they're designed to generate engagement. Um, the combination of those things are, are a, a choice-making process that decides what shows up in my Facebook feed. And... Uh, I just think that is a media company. It, it, it's, it's not generating it, but it's basically plucking it out of the world and presenting it in a way that it might as well be, a, you know, a, a Washington Post or a Wall Street Journal. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think the fake news stuff, as you, I think the phrase you used was tone deaf, and that was the very phrase that occurred to me as well. You know, the, the fake news issue on Facebook is particularly poor. I think, you know, it, it, it may or may not favor a particular candidate, and that's not really... The point. The point is that Facebook doesn't seem to have worked very hard to get rid of it, and it's it's probably the closest equivalent to Twitter's abuse problem. You know, this is something that's yeah. well known. It's been talked about a ton that algorithms should, in theory, be able to solve, and yet haven't. Um, and it speaks to kind of a lack of will on the part of executives in solving that problem. Um, and that's you know that's the issue here, I think. And so I, you know, Zuckerberg's obviously been dismissive of it, and and 
because uh, you know he has to feel good about himself and, and his company and what it's doing, and yet. At the same time, um, you know, it's very clear that there is a lot of fake news that spreads on Facebook. There's been lots of anecdotal examples of this in the last few days that people have shared. But BuzzFeed did a big investigation a while back, uh, along with a partner, I can't remember who, that looked into this. You know, it's clearly a real issue. Uh, and yet they haven't chosen to really solve it. Um, and, and getting rid of the human editors, which ostensibly was a response to accusations of bias, but it, it certainly hasn't helped matters because now you're left with just an algorithm trying to make those decisions. And that's, that's, that's tough unless you really spend a lot of time training the algorithm on how to recognize fake news. Well, and I wish that Facebook and Zuckerberg would just own their responsibility as editors or curators of the information that they see or that we see. I mean, there's no other way around it. The only other option is what they got rid of years ago, which is just one gigantic fire hose of everything that you could possibly be connected to on Facebook just pouring out. Mm-hmm. That's the only that's the only version of Facebook that makes it a tech company presenting media rather than a media company choosing what we see. Right. And as long as they're not doing the fire hose approach, which they can't, and there are all kinds mm-hmm. of reasons they can't, and, and and you know still drive ad revenue and all the things that they care about. I just wish that as a company, they would they would own the editorial process, rather than pretending that it is unbiased, because that's impossible. There are choices being made, and those choices, by definition, are going to be biased towards some outcome. And uh, and, and that's the thing is I'm I'm not comfortable blaming Facebook on an election result that half of America is really angry about. We've had mm-hmm. plenty of those elections in the past. This is no right. different. Um, But I am also uncomfortable with Facebook just washing its hands and pretending that they had no role Mm -hmm. in the tenor of the of the of the campaign. The tone of it was shaped, uh, abetted, in a sense, by by this editorial process that Facebook is pretending they don't engage in. No, absolutely. Okay, well, I think we've probably spent even more time talking about that, but let's move on to the other aspects. And that's been largely about how we got here, but now the discussion turns to kind of what happens next in terms of the tech industry, in terms of tech policy and so on. And there are a few different areas that we want to talk about. We want to talk about trade in a broad sense. Uh, we want to talk about M&A activity and the media specifically. Uh, we want to talk about net neutrality and um, the idea of repatriating overseas profits. Um, so we'll, we'll hit each of those quickly here in the next few minutes, starting with trade. Um, And on trade, there are several different things involved here. During the campaign, Donald Trump talked about um, the idea that American companies should make goods in the US, for example, um, talked about not shipping jobs overseas, uh, and a variety of other things related to that. Um, So that's one topic. There are various other topics. Obviously, there's trade agreements that he has threatened to pull out of, or at least try to renegotiate. Um, it's talking about putting tariffs on goods and, and so on and so forth. So all kinds of things relating to trade, which obviously would all have an impact on tech companies, especially those that make hardware and therefore rely heavily on goods made in China and other parts of the world outside the U.S. So, Aaron, what was your take here? Well, I think this is going to be really interesting um, for a company, for tech companies that are manufacturing overseas. Uh, I, what was once a certainty is now far less certain. And, and to be fair, this is, you know, this idea of limiting trade um, more aggressively than we have been, right? Because the, for the last couple of decades, the standard approach of the federal government has been broadening free trade and removing trade barriers. And now the winds have shifted and, and are moving the other direction. That wasn't an exclusively Trump thing. Um, in fact, Secretary Clinton, who had helped craft the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that has yet to be ratified, and finalized, um, you know, she was in favor of it and then faced a primary campaign where <laughs> there was a lot of opposition to it and to other kinds of trade. And so she shifted directions and, and, and started making the case for tighter control on trade. So, so it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just Trump. It was really both parties that were moving, that have been moving away from free trade where this is a problem for tech companies manufacturing is they produce this stuff overseas because it's so much cheaper to produce and therefore in turn cheaper for us buying it. You know, iPhones, um, Pixel phones, um, laptops, all these devices are going to be um, more expensive if the ability of companies to produce these things overseas and ship them back here for sale without, uh, you know, without without increased tariffs um, 
that's it's going to make all these products more expensive and that's going to by definition drive down sales and so so it's a scary time i think scary is the wrong word it's an uncertain time to be heading a tech company um, that's manufacturing overseas yeah and that's i think that's the big challenge here i mean i had a reporter contact me this morning saying, you know, what do you think about this? Tech stocks are down even as a lot of the market is up. You know, is this because people are, you know, concerned that these companies are going to have this or that effect as a result of the election? And, you know, what I said was I don't think it's that people are worried about a specific effect. I think it's the uncertainty that you just talked about. It's that right. we don't know how many of these things that were talked about in the campaign will actually happen. And that's for two reasons. One is how many of these was Donald Trump, the candidate, really serious about in a way that means that Donald Trump, the president, would actually implement them or seek to implement them. The other one is how many of these things will actually receive the support of Republicans in Congress, who in many cases would actually have to go along with this stuff for it to become law, to change existing law, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, there are these threats and promises, but we don't know how many of them will actually be uh, implemented, how many of them will even be attempted. Um, and so, I, you know, as I put it, the, the cone of uncertainty, which is a term that we often see in uh, the context of hurricane forecasting, but the cone of uncertainty is unusually large here. There's a really wide range of possible outcomes around some of this stuff, and I think that's really what has hit tech stocks. Rather than a specific concrete concern, it's that um, there's just a lot of uncertainty about exactly what the tech policy is going to be of this new government that comes in. You know, I think the Clinton campaign had a tech policy. Whether you agree with it or not is kind of neither here or there. They had a fairly well-articulated tech policy. The Trump campaign never really did. And, and so we're all kind of reading between the lines in some of these public statements that were made around these issues, including trade that we've just been talking about. Uh, and we're having to figure out kind of what that might mean. And it, it really is a lot uncertain still at this point. Yeah, I, I think one other area where the tech companies have a looming battle where trade could be the weapon used against them is um, is privacy. Um, you know, it's easy to forget that six months ago we were talking about Apple and its fight with the FBI um, over uh, the the sort of unbreachable privacy of iPhones, and Trump was pretty vocal about that in his disagreement, that he thought Apple was behaving like a bad citizen, and he even encouraged a boycott of Apple products. Um, trade is a place where if companies aren't... Um, creating enough transparency for government agencies in their products. Uh, trade is a place where a Trump presidency could hit them. Um, the president has a, a surprising amount of influence and control over our trade agreements. Um, it's true that Congress ratifies them, but, but it's the executive branch that negotiates them all and can step out of them. And uh, I think that's a place where it'll be interesting to see two seemingly separated issues actually come, you know, come together. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, well, let's move on to talking about um, the media and uh, M&A activity, which are kind of related in some ways. Recode had a headline, it was an article written by Edmund Lee, and the headline was, Trump doesn't like the media, he certainly doesn't like media mergers. And the, the subhead was, no AT&T deal for Time Warner. Also, Comcast breakup from NBC Universal, question mark. So, you know, this piece was really about the fact that Trump has harangued individual media outlets and the media in general during the course of the campaign. Uh, and has specifically said he doesn't like the idea of the AT&T Time Warner merger that's been proposed. And so um, there is the question about that merger specifically. There's the question about what happens to media M&A more generally. Um, you know, there's been obviously a fair amount of talk about CBS and, Via and Viacom being reunited, um, you know, various other deals being contemplated. We're in a period of M&A activity and, and consolidation in the media industry generally. Um, you know, how much more of that could we see? You know, how much would... Uh, policy at the FCC and the DOJ in particular be affected by a Trump presidency. And this is, again, another one of those things where normally you'd say, well, we move from a Democratic to a Republican administration, and in general, uh, the administration becomes more open to M&A activities and consolidation and uh, less um, uh, there's less interference, if you like, on antitrust grounds in some of these things. Um, but this is different. We've had these you know, specific one-off statements from Donald Trump and more general sort of distaste for the media. Um, and so the question is kind of where does that go? Um, and that's another one where it's at least somewhat uncertain. Well, and I think there's something else in, in Trump's criticism of the media that threatens um, any any mergers in the space, and it's that Trump's Trump's complaint wasn't just a biased media; it's a unit, it's a it's a media that's unified in its bias against Donald Trump. 
and and his campaign, right? I mean, and and the idea that all these big media conglomerates can form uh, creates more opportunities for that bias to be even even stronger, right? And 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 I think that's part of the psychology going on here. If these companies are separate, then there's a lesser likelihood of one editorial staff sort of deciding the tone of the reporting. Um, you know, a lot of Trump supporters, uh, the arguments that they were making leading up to the election is that the media is is biased to the point of conspiracy, right? That it, that, that all these people engaged in the media are conspiring to make Donald Trump look really bad to sink his chances. Um, you know, I personally, I don't think it rises to the level of conspiracy. There's always been, and this is really well researched, a, a bias against, you know, in the general media, there's, there's, there's pretty compelling research of a, of a left-leaning bias, not something I would call a conspiracy, but just sort of the natural outcome of the way the media has worked over the years. Breaking it up, the idea is, creates more opportunities for independent voices. Um, and it really was independent media uh, that most that many Trump supporters turned to. I had this experience voting actually, so I voted early. And as I was standing in line, struck up a conversation with a couple behind me. And and uh, you know, during the conversation, one of the questions the husband asked me was how how often I read what he called, and this is a direct quote, alternative news sources. Mm-hmm. And it was based on this idea that you know we have such a, a unified voice in a way that's biased against Donald Trump and his campaign that people felt like they had to turn elsewhere. And uh, breaking up media companies, right, reduces the likelihood of collusion in, in, in creating a unified bias against Donald Trump. Right, right. That's an interesting argument. Um, let's talk about net neutrality quickly. This is one that um, uh, a policy area that's fairly new still in the grand scheme of things. There were some modest attempts to regulate it under Michael Powell, previous FCC chairman, and under the current FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, we've seen uh, more uh, aggressive regulation of this area, and it's kind of become the law of the land at this point. Um, and yet this is another area where uh, Donald Trump has sort of talked about overturning regulations and, and perhaps viewing uh, net neutrality rather differently from the Obama administration. Um, it's It's... It is in some ways a major issue uh, in telecoms regulation, and yet there are still, you know, even before regulation was in place, there have been very few sort of high-profile examples of people, of companies, that is, breaking the principles of net neutrality, at least as they've been defined in the regulations that now exists. Um, and yet I think a lot of people in the tech industry are concerned that this might uh, go backwards under a Trump administration. Um, the interesting thing here, of course, is that there are a number of mergers that have taken place over the last several years, which uh, include as merger conditions uh, agreements to abide by net neutrality, uh, whatever the regulation is. Um, and so there's a lot of this that will stay regardless of what the individual uh, regulations at the FCC uh, do over this time. And, and even if there was a change in formal policy, um, you know, to the extent that, say, the AT&T Time Warner merger is approved, we might well see... Uh, net neutrality regulations included in that um, if it's not banned entirely. Um, so that's another one of these issues where um, we could see some changes. I'm not sure how far-reaching those changes would really be. As I say, from everything that I've seen from big telecoms companies and cable companies, they're all fairly wary of heavier regulation, and so they've all mostly abided by these principles anyway. Uh, having said that, we've seen, you know, over the last few days, the FCC sent a letter to AT&T about the fact that AT&T zero rates uh, direct TV content on the AT&T mobile network. Uh, in other words, doesn't charge for data uh, when you're watching direct TV content, which they now, of course, own. And this is a big part of the rationale for the Time Warner merger, too, is that they'd be able to do interesting things with their content. Um, and so the FCC is already looking into that. It's funny timing, given that the current FCC isn't likely to last much longer. Um, there's often a change in leadership within the months after a new president comes into office. So. Who knows if that'll even have time to run its course? But and at this time, it's just an inquiry. But um, you know, there are some of these minor things as T-Mobile's binge on uh, zero rating of all video content, for example. There's a bunch of stuff like this that's that's going on, and so uh, there are some minor things that could, could go either way if this regulation changes. But I'm not sure it's going to be hugely influential. No, although having just talked about um, the danger of a, you know, the perceived danger of a, of a consolidated media voice it's a funny thing to be opposed to net neutrality to me because 
I mean, there were a whole bunch of independent news sources that relied exclusively on the web for, for communicating their view on the news. And net neutrality is part of what makes them capable of doing that, right? I mean, if you strip away net neutrality, you basically say that all of the carriers, all of the internet service providers can pick and choose the content, you know, the, the uh, information sources that they want to promote. And the promotion can be in, you know, maybe less, less seemingly dangerous ways, like zero rating content from one website versus a different one. So you're not paying for data if you're reading ABC News, but you are if you're reading Drudge or Breitbart, right? I mean, that's right. the date. That's that. That's that's where absolutely no restrictions on net neutrality. Um, you know, freeing up that regulatory situation entirely makes all that. Uh, entirely legal, and so it's a funny mm -hmm. conflict. And I, it, but you know, this kind of stuff happens constantly in politics. I actually tweeted that just uh, just yesterday that you know the two most direct routes to hypocrisy are politics and parenting, and uh, this right. is an example of in the in the political space, you know, because somebody concerned about a um, a non diverse uh, set of news sources ought to also be concerned about insisting on net neutrality so that every news source out there has equal access to its readers. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one. Um, the last topic we wanted to talk about was repatriation of profits. And it's obviously something that's very relevant to Apple in particular, but also Google and to some extent other companies that generate a lot of their profits outside the U.S. and have left a lot of the cash from that overseas because they don't want to pay the fairly uh, hefty tax rates that apply if you bring that money home. Uh, and so another thing that we might see under a Republican administration in general, under the Donald Trump administration in particular, is finally a solution to that problem, perhaps a tax break for repatriation, a tax holiday or whatever you want to call it, um, that would allow some of that money to finally be brought back uh, and pay perhaps a lower rate of tax than normally prevails for that kind of thing. Um, do you think that's likely, Aaron? Uh, more likely than it's been in a long time. Um, I don't think we've had a repatriation holiday for like, like that for over a decade. And it certainly didn't look like it was going to happen under a Democratic uh, White House. Um, whether or not it's a lock is hard to say just because there will be so many competing policy interests, you know, that will – Trump has a pretty expansive agenda. He's got a lot of stuff he wants to do. And I have no idea how important this will be on his agenda or, or that of the House or Senate. Um, that said, I think you are going to have a lot of people willing to do it. Um, tr Trump's push for jobs, and that being one of his central messages during the campaign, um, this seems like a pretty obvious path to trying to encourage more of that happening. Uh, you know, if a lot of this overseas capital can get back uh, inside the United States where companies can put it to work and invest it, you know, that's the argument anyway, is that right. it will lead to a lot more jobs. And so maybe if it's sort of pitched from that angle, um, mm -hmm. it'll get a bigger priority in the legislative right. agenda. Yeah, that makes it more palatable anyway, especially at a time when um, there are going to need to be some new sources of taxes because uh, they've been talking yeah. about a lot of tax cuts and so on. So, I mean, this is a lowering of the tax rate, but right now the, the actual tax being paid is zero because the money is just staying overseas. And so... Right. Uh, you know, even if the rate comes down, um, there's a sort of version of price elasticity here where it suddenly makes sense to bring that money home, and at least some tax does get paid in the short term. So, it, interesting it, to see how that one plays out. It changes the nature of Apple's, um, uh, you know, shareholder value program and returning value to yeah. shareholders because it means yeah. they won't, they would, they wouldn't have to borrow anymore to return value to shareholders. Because we did a whole question of the week on that a while back, but you know, Apple. Apple borrows now because it's cheaper to borrow and pay that money to shareholders than it is to repatriate their overseas income. Right, right, absolutely. Well, I, we need to wrap up this topic and move on to our second topic. But um, Aaron, any last thoughts on all this? I mean, I kind of shared some personal views up front, um, but anything that you want to add to that? Uh, I, I, this is diverging just very briefly from tech as a topic and more specifically about President-elect Trump and what the future holds that way. Um, you know, it's an interesting problem because there are a lot of people who really are hurt. I think they saw Trump's election as a as an endorsement of a lot of really um, detestable things that uh, some people, although it's a really small number, but that some people in our country think are okay. 
and willing to promote like racism and sexism and the, and, and the others. I actually, you know, we talked about it pretty extensively in my business ethics class yesterday as a group with the students and and uh, uh, they're they're a really civil group even though there were a lot of there's there was some sharp disagreement. Um, I, I think what I have to say is that the path forward is not gonna is not gonna work if 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 it, if we use enmity and anger and hostility as our tool, and that's true on both sides. I've been sad to see, you know, people I know sort of painting every Trump voter as a racist. I, right. the Trump the Trump voters I know aren't those people. I think they just saw the choice that they had as really the the the, op, the two options they had as unpalatable. But as a good citizen, they felt like they had to choose one of the two. Right. Um, and on, you know, and on the other side, I've seen some really distasteful gloating, you know, again, just p painting liberals who, who lost the election as, uh, um, you know, as, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> I mean, the point is, but the, but the overall point is, right, is, is that it's just breeding enmity. It's just breeding hatred right. for each other. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I just you know, our, our republic doesn't survive in circumstances like that. Uh, I am nervous personally about Trump's authoritarian leanings. And I know a lot of people say that they don't believe he'll go through with any of that stuff. But all we have now is what he said. And he's spoken in really sloppy ways about really important institutions. Um, but if we expect President Trump to uphold and respect the institutions we have in this country, I think we all share the same obligation. I think once we start, um, I think any criticism of our, uh, of, of our form of government is corrosive. I think, I, th I think it's wrong personally, this is just me, I think it's wrong mm -hmm. personally to say, you know, he's not my president. He is, because reputing, saying he's not my president is saying, the system of government that elected him is not my government, and I have I take issue with that. But I think the most American thing in the world is to say, "Yeah, he's my president. Let me tell you all the ways I disagree with him." <laughs> right. right. And uh, and and I think you know, like President Obama and Bush before him, and Clinton before him, you know, we we need to intensely uh, criticize um, the decisions our elected leaders make. They have to be subject to scrutiny, but I think at the same time we have to we have to find a way to respect each other and to respect the rule of law and and the system that we have in place because it's it served us well. Just one final quick comment: I years ago I had a chance to listen to uh, Justice Breyer of the Supreme Court talk about the 2000 election. He sat on the panel that decided Bush v. Gore, and that was a really really divisive election and campaign. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, it's a miracle that we live in a country where nobody was jailed over right. that election. Nobody was shot. And right. we live in a country where our institutions have been robust in a way and the citizenry has respected them in a way that really does keep our country free. And right. uh, the way we lose that freedom is by dismantling the institutions that preserve it. So right. that's, that's my last thought. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, I won't add enormously to what I said up front. I mean, I ultimately echo what you said about, I think the way forward is civility and not enmity. You know, this, the way forward isn't to get angry at each other. It's to try to understand each other better, to, to find common ground with people, common cause with people and work together. There was a lot of stuff on Twitter about uh, the night of the election and, and the day after that sort of assumed the default response needed to be more party politics, essentially, that it needed to be more right versus left or Republican versus Democrat or conservative versus liberal. And, and I think really the solution is people coming together across these traditional boundaries and uh, empathizing with each other, finding the things they have in common and working together for those things. And uh, you know, there's a, an event happening on Saturday here in Utah called the Utah Citizen Summit. And my wife and I are going to try to attend the evening session um, of that. But it's basically uh, an event about people coming together across party lines. And, and uh, it's uh, an opportunity for people to get involved, to learn from people that have successfully worked in a bipartisan way in other parts of the country and here in Utah. Um, and I'm sure there are other similar events going on around the country. So uh, that one happens to be being streamed online, at least part of it this Saturday. But um, 
you know, that's what I'm going to be trying to do is engage in more of that kind of thing going forward. But anyway, enough on politics. <laughs> Maybe next week we'll discuss religion. Who knows? Um, <laughs> right. But uh, no, not really. But uh, for, for our second topic, um, we're going to talk about Google's hardware. So rather a change of gears here. And, um, but I've, been, uh, I've had the Google Pixel phone for a couple of weeks, the home for, I think, a week, and the Daydream view since yesterday. So uh, my, my depth of experience with each of these is slightly different. But uh, I've been using them all a fair amount since they arrived. And, and so have some sort of preliminary views. And obviously, there have been some formal reviews in the usual spots on these over the last couple of weeks. But uh, just wanted to share some of those views as our question of the week this week. So Aaron's going to be asking me some questions about uh, that hardware and my, my impressions of it. So I think the big question is, what do we make of Google as a hardware company? But we're not going to have you answer that yet. We'll save that big question for the end. Okay. And so I think what we'll start with, actually, is we'll run through the different products. And, and uh, let's start with the home. That's the one of uh, the three that I'm sort of most curious about how it's, how it's been. So why don't you start and just give us your first impressions of the Google Home? Yeah, Google Home's interesting. I mean, it's always felt to me like Google should have a big advantage in this space and that it already has this enormous knowledge graph, you know, that powers its search engine. You know, you can put almost any question or even just a set of search terms into Google and get a, a very good response. Often the very first result is exactly what you're looking for. Uh, and so relative to Amazon, who obviously was a newcomer to this, it felt like Google should have a big advantage. And in many senses, it's very good. You know, there are a lot of questions that you can ask that you do get a great, you know, detailed answer to. Um, and, and so it works very effectively. Um, you know, it's also been quite clever at interpreting natural language queries. And so um, just as an example, you know, we, we've been listening to the Hamilton uh, Broadway recording quite a lot in our house. And our son in particular has latched onto the King George character as his favorite character and his songs as his favorite songs. And so shortly after the home arrived, um, you know, we were playing around with it a little bit. And, he, and he's five and his voice has, you know, many of the mannerisms of a five-year-old. It's not the clearest voice always, but he said, play the King song from Hamilton into this thing. And I thought, fat chance, this is going to work. And before I knew it, it had responded by saying, playing the three songs by the King from Hamilton the Musical, you know, starting with You'll Be Back, you know, and it started playing that one and was going to go on to play the other two songs that are sung by the King character in, in Hamilton, you know. And so stuff like that blows you away. Like, that is really amazing. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, things like that where it just does a really, really good job at recognizing your voice, interpreting it, and then serving up an answer that's useful. Um, having said that, uh, it breaks down in all kinds of funny ways. And so uh, that worked fine. And at the time, I had YouTube Music set as my default music service. Uh, I, I changed that to Google Music um, as my default and tried the same query again. It didn't work. Uh, and so even though you'd think the Google search engine and the Google natural language processing and so on would be the same regardless of what music service you choose, there's some weird difference between those two things. And I don't know if it's tapping into different metadata around the music that's on YouTube versus the music that's on Google Music, but it failed. It basically didn't know what I was talking about and didn't play anything. Um, and I've had a few quirks like that where you, you change things ever so slightly in the settings and suddenly a query it understood fine yesterday, it doesn't understand today. Um, Another thing that's tricky with all these sort of screenless assistants is um, that you, you get no feedback in terms of visual feedback. You don't often know what it thinks you said. And so when it makes a mistake, you don't know whether it's a mistake in understanding or a mistake in interpretation uh, or a mistake in delivering a response. You don't know which stage that's breaking down, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, and so, you know, I've had good responses and bad responses from it. I think the other thing more broadly is... Um, just that, you know, I had it sitting on my desk for the first day or so because I wanted to play around with it quite a bit. And then I thought, you know what, the real way to try this out is the way that I try out any other device, is just to use it naturally in the course of my life. And so I moved it to the kitchen and thought, you know, that's probably where we use it the most. And, and the reality is I may have asked it five things since, you know, I moved it there a week ago. And, and that's the reality with me uh, with these things is um, I don't feel the need for them. I don't find them that useful. Um, uh, and we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But it's been an interesting few days. I, I, I'm you've had an Alexa. You're sorry, you've had an Echo before and have used right. Alexa before. Um, can you compare the two briefly, the Google Home with yeah, the Echo? I think, I think they're very similar. I think um, you know, ultimately, performance-wise, they're pretty similar. They both do very well at voice recognition, which is something that, say, Siri still falls short on. And I'm never sure how much of that is 
these companies are just better at voice recognition and how much of it is just when you've got a great big device, you can put mics all over it and really make it you know, optimized as a device for voice recognition, whereas, of course, the iPhone is optimized for portability and all kinds of other things, and um, you kind of have to squeeze the microphones in where you can. Um, but you know they're both very good at that. I've, I've not found either of them to be better or worse at that necessarily. Um, you know I find um, that the Google's approach to third-party integration, which is pretty limited right now, but I think their approach is better in that you use more natural language. On Echo, you have to basically invoke the name of whatever third-party skill you want to use, and then say what you want to do. And uh, that that seems more awkward. Google feels like it has the more natural approach here. It has fewer third-party integrations, but Google can also do more by itself, so it arguably needs those third-party integrations less, and they'll come in time as well. There's going to be an API and everything, so that's one difference. Um, you know, Google has various Google services built in, which in theory should be a big advantage. Um, so it has access to your calendar and various things, but it doesn't can't read your Gmail, can't tell you what your latest Gmail messages are. It can't uh, it can't do multi-account support either. And that's you know got to be something that many people do is have a personal Gmail account and then some kind of work calendar or or email or whatever as well. Uh, and Google Home is tied to one account, and so I have it tied to my personal account, which is what my search history and music and so on is all tied to. But um, the reality is that you know I went to it yesterday just to check this and said, okay, Google, what's on my calendar for tomorrow? You know, ahead of a day when I had all kinds of appointments for work. And it said, there's nothing on your calendar tomorrow. And, you know, it's a pretty fundamental failing. You know, on my phone, uh, Google's able to combine the two, um, you know, in calendar and so on. Um, but Google Home is fundamentally built on, around one user, one account, but one user as well. And that's the other thing is there are lots of people in the house, but I, I'm one of them and the others are all not me. And yet it can't handle that very well. And Amazon is separate from any existing account uh, that you might have on Google. You can add multiple accounts and so on. And so it actually arguably handles some of that stuff better, which is a bit counterintuitive. But um, that's something that I've noticed. So some of your criticisms seem to be just uh, based on the fact that these are early products and they can be refined over time. But some of them seem more fundamental. Give us, I mean, what's your take now that you've had, tried both the Echo and the, and the Home? Um, you know, what's your take on these home-based assistants uh, so far, just as a general category? Yeah, I, I wrote a piece about it for Tech Opinions this week, partly off the back of my experience with the home over the last week or so. But um, I, I raised several points that I think are worth mentioning here briefly. One is the one I mentioned just now about these devices don't have screens, so you don't get any visual feedback. And, and for certain kinds of results, like a recipe, it's hopeless to have it list you all 10 steps all in quick succession. Um, you know, you really want to be able to look at something visually so that they can find you a recipe, but it's not actually all that helpful to you. Um, and there's a whole range of stuff like that. And there, there are some queries where you can ask something. It says, here's the basic answer, but if you want to know more, open the home app on your phone and look at the website. And that's actually quite helpful, but still requires your phone. And all these things do require a phone for setup. They require a phone for any of the uh, settings and that kind of thing. And so they're not really independent. It's almost like these assistants need an assistant. Um, which is kind of funny. Um, another one is that, of course, these things are useless to you as soon as you leave the house. And I do have a Pixel, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but if you didn't, you know, everything the assistant can do for you at home vanishes the minute you leave the house. And it's the same for Echo today, too. And then you look at uh, Apple Siri, Microsoft Cortana, um, you know, those things go with you where you go because they're on your phone, they're on your computer. Um, you know, they're portable in that sense. And, uh, and so if they eventually do a device in the home, it will fit very naturally into that sort of ecosystem, whereas these devices feel like little islands today. Um, and that's a bit frustrating. So you get very used to them at home, but they're useless to you when you leave. So in some ways, you'd rather use the same assistant everywhere on every device, and that's just not the case today. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, in general, I, I like the idea of them, but I just find that the utility isn't there. Like, I, I, there's the same reason I took the Echo back after I bought that and had that for a few weeks. Like, we just weren't using it. Like, the main use case was my kids asking it to tell them jokes. I don't need to spend 130 or $180 to have a device that can do that, you know. There's a certain novelty. Uh, you know, yesterday uh, was one of the first times this week that we used it at all. We were talking about... I can't remember how we got onto the subject, talking about breaking bones. And so somebody was saying, well, what, which bone do you suppose gets broken most often? And I said, well, it's probably your arm or your leg or something like that. And I said, well, why don't you ask Google? And so one of the kids went over and said, which bone does people break the most often? And it came up with a result. It said it was the clavicle. You know, So it was kind of fun that we had it right there. But if we hadn't had, I'd have gone on my phone and asked Siri, and one of the five web results that popped up would have had the answer. And I, I tried that query this morning. Um, so 
again, it doesn't really, the job to be done isn't really clear for me. And, and you know, this has been the case when I've asked people, they've said, oh, it's telling jokes. Well, I don't need that. Um, it's controlling home automation. Well, if you don't have any smart home gear, which most of us still don't, that's kind of useless. And there are other ways to control that stuff too, obviously. And you might want to control it from rooms other than the one where this device is. So that's the fundamental issue with, with this stuff for me is it just isn't actually that useful anymore. It's a nice little novelty, but uh, I find that the major use cases are pretty thin. Well, it'll be interesting to see how popular this becomes. Uh, let's move on to the Pixel. Um, yeah. what are, you've had that one for a few weeks. What are your impressions of it so far? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's really nice hardware. Um, I, I ordered the smaller of the two just because it was cheaper and I was paying for it out of pocket. Um, and uh, in some ways, that's made it interesting because I use the 7 Plus on the iPhone, which is my day-to-day -day device. Uh, and so there's some differences that just relate to size. Uh, which I have to keep trying to get over. But, um, you know, on the whole, really solid phone. Um, it's very nice. The hardware is really nice, polished looking. It feels nice in your hand. Um, it's, uh, you know, the version of Android is very clean. Um, the cameras are very good. Um, you know, this is one of the big things they emphasized in the launch event. The cameras are very good. Um, there are some limitations. So, um, you know, there is a portrait mode. But in that portrait mode, because it's only got one camera, you take the picture and then you have to move the camera so it gets a sense of perspective since it doesn't have two separate lenses. Uh, so it's nowhere near as natural as portrait mode on the iPhone 7 Plus, for example. And the results are a bit ropey sometimes as well. Uh, but just for taking regular pictures and videos, the camera's very good. Um, I think really at this point, um, this camera, the iPhone camera, the, the latest Samsung cameras are all pretty much on par. They, they each do some things better or worse, but mostly it's a matter of making different decisions about what to prioritize. I think that's something we talked about before when we, we uh, talked about the reviews that people have done of the Pixel. Um, so that's worth noting. I, it's a couple of my frustrations. One is the fingerprint sensors on the back, um, which if you're holding the phone in your hand is very natural. You, even when it's off and the screen isn't even on, you rest your finger on the fingerprint sensor and it unlocks the phone naturally. Um, but if it's sitting on a table or something like that and it's locked, then the only way to unlock it is to press the button on the side and then to um, lift it up and put your fingerprint sensor on the back. So it's a bit frustrating when it comes to, um, you, you can put in a pin code, but that kind of defeats the object of having a fingerprint sensor. So, um, you know, that's a bit frustrating. I find it has um, virtual on-screen home and back and multitasking buttons, which, you know, a number of Android dev devices have done in the past. The, the shortcoming of that is if you're ever playing a video or something in full screen and you need to quickly stop playing it uh, and get out to the home screen, um, you have to kind of fiddle around a bit to get those buttons to come back up again so that you can get back to the home screen. And that seems interesting to me in the context of the rumors that we've heard about next year's iPhones uh, ditching the home button. You know, whatever Apple does here, I think there has to be a very easy way from anywhere to instantly get out of the app that you're in, get back to the home screen. Um, and I'm curious to see how they implement that along with a lot of other stuff. But the, using this device has kind of taught me that that can be a bit tricky if you don't have a physical button that's always accessible. Um, and so I'm curious to see how they'll manage that. Um, in general, you know, it's like a lot of other Android phones. It, it has, you know, a lot of apps these days, pretty much all the apps that I want to use with relatively few exceptions are there. Um, you know, I've tried to use it for a lot of stuff. Uh, one thing I have noticed, uh, interesting, and I think I mentioned this to you on Monday when I saw you, um, was uh, that using an Apple Watch with my iPhone makes it much harder for me to just swap out my iPhone for a different phone because uh, I don't want to lose that, all the stuff that comes with having an Apple Watch. I find that getting notifications on a phone, and especially in such a way that they're all kind of clustered together rather than showing up one by one as they do on uh, the watch, um, I'm finding that's, that's kind of annoying to me now. And They all make the same buzz uh, when the phone is, has got the sound turned off, and it's very hard to tell uh, right away which notification just came in and w whether I need to deal with it or not. So that was kind of an interesting thing. It doesn't really relate to this phone specifically, but kind of speaks to the power of the Apple Watches as something that's going to tie people even more into the iPhone and, and the broader Apple ecosystem. So, I mean, if you had to pick a strength of the Pixel in the marketplace and, and a weakness, what would you what would you choose? What makes it stand out and where does it fall short? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the cameras, and I think that's part of it. Certainly, the cameras are very, very good. Um, I think it's just a super clean version of Android, and not everybody wants that. Some people are used to Samsung's way of doing things, but it's nice not to have a phone that's utterly cluttered up with duplications of things where Google Apps would be the best answer. Um, so, you know, there is some duplication still because, you know, Android's a bit funny that way when it comes to things like messaging. But um, for the most part, and you get to choose when you first set the phone up, you get to choose which... 
uh, of these sort of additional Google applications you want to install and which you don't. So you do get some control over that as well. Um, but you know, there's less of that duplication. It's much cleaner. It feels like it was, you know, designed as one thing rather than two separate things, which is the way a lot of Android devices often do. So it's very clean in that sense. It's nice. The Google Assistant integration is nice. I mean, that has a lot of the same pros and cons that I talked about with Home earlier. Um, I haven't used it a ton. It's good for some things. It's not great for everything else. You know, it's much like other assistants. Um, the balance between those two may be slightly different than it is for, say, Siri, but, you know, for the most part, it's uh, it performs uh, much the same as other assistants do, where it, it it's a hit and miss, basically. So, so yeah, strength-wise, um, those are some of the things I'd highlight. I think weakness-wise, there aren't too many. It's, it's a really solid phone. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, there are still some apps that don't exist on, on Android or at least aren't as good on Android, and, and that will always be, I, I suspect, the case. But, you know, the vast majority of things are there. Um, you know, I think the the design choice with the fingerprint sensor on the back is an interesting one. I mean, it, it cleans up the front of the screen, but it's actually, from a utilities perspective, it's, it's kind of frustrating sometimes. Um, there are some other funny bits and pieces as well. But, you know, in general, I think it's a really solid phone. I think if you're in the market for an Android phone... If you're not particularly tied to Samsung, I think it's a really good choice. All right. Well, let's. We don't have much time left, so let's talk about the Daydream View. This is a. Yeah. I mean, this is. A, you've only had this for a day, and yeah. uh, but but you've had a chance to use it. So, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they, they, it's cheaper than say the Samsung Gear VR. Is at seventy nine dollars. Uh, I was able to just go and pick one up at Best Buy, which was kind of nice. Um, you can get them at the Verizon store and some other places as well, and just order them online. Um, it's, you know, one of the things they made a lot of is this sort of fabric that they used. So rather than being all plastic and stuff, it's, it's fabric. And so it's supposed to be softer and more comfortable. My experience so far has, has been that that's nice to touch with your hands, but actually on my head, it's no more comfortable really than and other devices that I've used. And actually some of the design choices are worse. So I found real pressure on my brow, for example, while wearing it, um, I don't know why that is. Other people have and haven't had the same experience. It seems to really vary by the shape of your head. But it's interesting that a device that, in theory, should be more comfortable has actually been, for me, less comfortable. Uh, I had a weird experience with the controller. So it has this little controller that's um, sort of like a cross between a Roku remote and an Apple TV remote um, that you hold in your hand. And uh, it works well when it works. But the first time I tried to use it, the orientation was flipped. Somehow it was upside down. <laughs> Um, I don't know how that happened, and I thought maybe I just had a faulty controller, and I shut the whole thing off and started again, and it worked fine. But my first experience was appalling with it, and that was my out-of-the-box experience with it, which was kind of funny. Um, there's some light leakage at the sides, which really detracts from the experience. You get these lights that kind of come in in your peripheral vision and, and then also bounce off the glass inside the device, which is a bit frustrating. I found that um, dust specks and things like that get on the lenses and on your phone, and they're very visible the way that the phone's positioned in there. Um, so that's been an interesting thing. Um, you know, the, the content's nice. The interface and the controller are much better when they work properly uh, than the Gear VR or, or other sort of smartphone-based stuff. The fact that you have a separate controller and you're not trying to fiddle around with something on the side of your head uh, really helps a great deal. Uh, the design's really nice. The sort of um, home screen, if you like, within it is good. That There's a nice little training thing that it talks you through at the beginning to learn how to use the controller and so on that, that really is quite nicely done. Um, the content's decent at the moment. I haven't had a chance to really explore that in depth, but there's some, some fun games in there, some nice sort of immersive videos in there. Um, there's a, the whole YouTube channel of VR content. There is uh, the Google Play Store. You can watch you know TV shows and movies that you might have bought or that you buy within the app. Uh, through there and kind of shows them as if they're on a big uh, cinema screen in front of you. Um, so there's a lot of nice stuff in there. You know, it's hard for me to judge the depth of the content having just had it for a day. But, you know, it's a pretty decent uh, effort, I think. It, it, it integrates very nicely with the Pixel. The Pixel does get quite hot in there. It does run down the battery quickly. I think that's just par for the course with this smartphone-based VR stuff. Uh, but, you know, on the whole, I think they've done a really nice job with it. So this is a really premature question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, you've only had this thing for a day, and these products are pretty early. I mean, do we do we do we know yet how important these are going to be? I mean, this, the mm. whole VR thing and and distinguishing it from AR, from augmented reality. I mean, specifically yeah. having the exclusive headset that's that's you know blocking out anything other than what you're seeing. Right. Do we know how big of a deal these are going to be? Yeah, I, th I think in general, you know, there are three things that VR is really quite good for. One is entertainment, and I mentioned video just now with YouTube and Google Play movies and stuff. It's to me, there's not a lot of appeal to that. I tend to do what most of my 
entertainment viewing with other people, especially with my wife, to some extent my wife and kids. Um, and so solitary viewing isn't all that appealing. But if you look at any of the statistics out there, if you look at how people are using smartphones and tablets, there's a lot of solitary viewing going on. And if you're watching it by yourself and you have a choice between watching it on a tiny screen that you're holding in your hands or slotting that screen into a VR viewer where it seems to take up your whole field of vision, um, you know, that's attractive to some extent. And I think as the technology gets better, um, you know, that will be a really interesting use case for VR, just this kind of immersive entertainment viewing. Um, I think, you know, and, and notifications and stuff can still pop up in there as well as such an extent that you can be pulled out of it as necessary. Uh, but it is amazing how immersive this stuff is, how much you totally forget what's around you, especially if there's good sound involved. Uh, I think the second one is education. And, you know, one of the first apps I tried out um, was one done by the Natural History Museum in London uh, and where there's a dinosaur skeleton on the wall uh, and it comes off the wall and starts swimming around and stuff around you uh, as if it's a real uh, creature. And it's really well done. And you can easily imagine, you know, schools, parents using it with their uh, kids, museums doing this kind of stuff to recreate, you know, what the world would have been like in a different place or time. You know, there's a lot of interesting applications there. Um, and then um, the third one is games. And, you know, there, there's two versions of that. There's casual gaming, hardcore gaming. I think they both have their place. Hardcore gaming VR is going to be a lot more expensive, less mainstream, largely sold to people who already have consoles or high-end PCs, uh, whereas the casual gaming will be the smartphone market, um, you know, subset of that. Um, but I think all those three things can be big. I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about VR is you try it once and it instantly becomes very obvious what the value proposition is. My kids have tried several of these different things that I've had to play around with and really enjoy them and always want to do them more and so on. You know, it's really fun. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential here in general. Well, so, I mean, Google's making this stuff now. I mean, they're making right. technology products that people are paying money for. But, you know, but this takes us back to the big question. Um, and I, our, our time has gone quickly. But what do, what do we make of Google as a hardware company? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if these are the first devices that they're making, they're really pretty solid. Um, you know, the home is a really nice piece of hardware. It has the shortcomings I talked about earlier, but they're mostly about software. Um, the Pixel is, again, a really nice piece of hardware. It has some, you know, design choices that I disagree with, like the fingerprint sensor being on the back. And, you know, there's a certain lack of originality in the overall look of the device. But, you know, it's a solid piece of hardware. Uh, and it's well integrated with really decent software as well. And then the Daydream View has been well thought through. You know, good user interface inside there. You know, some little niggles around the, the fit of the device for me personally. But I know other people haven't shared those. So, you know, it's a really solid set of hardware from... Google on the whole, there's definitely some areas for improvement. Um, you know, there's the big question about whether Google should be competing with its OEM partners and how that's all going to play out. Uh, and that's certainly going to affect its ability to, to sell Daydream as a vision because Samsung's still probably going to go its own route. Um, but, you know, this is a really solid set of devices from Google, and I, I'm generally pretty impressed. Well, that's great work. I, I'm, I'm sure Google has more up its sleeve. It'll be interesting to see what's next. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. All right, well, let's wrap up with our weekly pick. Um, and Aaron, it's your turn to recommend something to our listeners this time around. So uh, this is entirely non sequitur to anything we've talked about, but I'm going to recommend <laughs> a, a, a portable camping stove, like a backpacking stove. Um, most people, when they backpack, um, uh, are using a fuel-based, like a canister-based camp stove, the kind where you connect essentially a little propane tank um, or something like it. Some people use liquid fuel or, or alcohol. Um, whether it's liquid or solid tabs. Uh, this is different. Uh, a lot of listeners are probably familiar with the BioLite camp stove, which is a, a, a small portable camp stove that actually becomes quite heavy because you attach what's essentially a battery pack and a fan to it. And it blows a fan, it blows a bunch of extra oxygen into the fire canister so that it burns really efficiently. There's another approach to this that doesn't require a battery and a fan. It's, it's uh, for stoves that use what's called two-stage burning. Whenever you burn wood, the material gets combusted, but there's a lot of it that's not yet burnt that rises up in the smoke. Uh, you can design fireplaces and stoves and other things in such a way that the smoke gets burnt at the, at the second stage. The trick is just making sure you get oxygen to the right place above where the main fuel is burning. And there's a really great little camp stove that's super cheap, and I recommend it just to have around because it's a handy little device, and it's called the Ohuhu Portable Stainless Steel Wood Burning Stove. And so, so that's, that, that name is O-H-U-H-U. -H -U. 
And basically the way this works is you set up these pieces into the camp stove. It elevates it above the ground and it has a canister inside that you add pretty much whatever. You can burn pine cones, you know, twigs, leaves. They won't burn very long, but you add sort of whatever fuel you can find around you where you're camping. And you just constantly feed this thing. Once it gets going, it burns pretty hot and it's easy to maintain it. And it burns super efficiently, meaning there's very little ash left. Um, and it does this because of the two stays burning. In fact, it's really fun because there's essentially a, a row of vents sort of at the top of the canister. And it looks like these things are outputting flame just like you would see on like a gas burning stove in your kitchen. But what's happening is the oxygen is flowing up through those top vents and, and that's allowing the smoke to be burned along with the wood below it. Um, we actually, my wife and I used this on a camping trip. We did a little backpacking trip for our anniversary last month and it was just a fun little stove and it was super great to not have to bring fuel with us. We were able to just grab whatever we wanted from around us and it was a fun experiment and got plenty hot. It, it won't get, it, it won't boil water quite as quickly as these canister stoves can because they're just designed to be super efficient that way. But, uh, the nice thing about the Ohu is it gives you a ton of flexibility. And if you're going to be backpacking for a long time, you know, more than just a handful of days, it's, it's nice to, to not have to pack your fuel with you as well. So anyway, that's the Ohuhu stove. And I forgot to say the best part about it is it's only 20 bucks. Uh, right now it's actually listed as unavailable on Amazon, but it, that's just a temporary supply thing. I'm sure it'll be available soon, but uh, it's 20 bucks, and there are competing brands that use the same approach to burning that are 60 to $80. I, I think that's uh, crazy how much you pay. So the Ohuhu is the way to go. All right. Let's see if we can tie all this stuff together. So if you feel disheartened by the election results and want to go out in the woods to get away from it all, then you can buy <laughs> this uh, camp stove to go with you and maybe take a daydream view with you so that you right. can watch some nice movies by the campfire. And if you go out in the woods, you might run into Hillary Clinton. I don't know if you saw that article, but some oh, hiker right. ran into her the, right? the next yeah. day. So. Chappaqua. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you, everybody, for being with us. We know we've gone a little longer than usual. We had uh, a lot to talk about, as you have heard. But uh, if you stuck with us to the end, thank you. Uh, hopefully you found it interesting and useful. We'll be back to our normal programming next week, um, politics-free, hopefully. And uh, we will put links to various things, including the camping stove that Aaron just recommended on the website, as usual. And we look forward to being with you again next week, hopefully on our usual day again. So thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>